welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Aaron. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I will get together and talk about some exciting topics in the wild and wonderful world of ecology, evolution, and natural history. And this week, we've decided to talk about research animals, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, lab rats, that sort of field. Animals are very important to science. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How did you find your research for this episode, by the way? You know, there's a... I would say there's a lot, but there's definitely... It's like a small circle of animals that are used for the majority of research. Rats and mice are probably the vast majority of them, but there's definitely some other important animals out there. Right, right, for sure. It's it's kind of this weird mix. You can really go one of two ways with this topic in my mind. Like You can either pick a pretty well-studied research animal that's just been used for all different kinds of lab testing and things of that nature and talk about all the weird and at times unethical things that have been done to those animals or you can kind of t- or you can talk about the times when we've used unusual animals for research studies and how that didn't go well and why we never did it again so personally i went down the former route i think the latter is a bit more narrow but that was just my approach yeah there's definitely it's got a dark past there's no doubt about it it's I'd say it's one of those necessary evils in life. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely go to a very dark place with this topic for sure. Hopefully, you didn't. <laughs> oh no, 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 I did. Mine's my, kind of it's a little light, it's a little playful. You know, it's, <laughs> well, keep it cool. Good. That's good to hear. I mean, if you really want to cover this topic thoroughly, it should probably get pretty dark. But we're not going to cover lab research as a whole. We're just going to talk about two topics within that umbrella that hopefully aren't super depressing. Yeah, no uh, no secrets in them over here. Oh, God, I hope not. But with that being said, I think I'm up, yeah? Yep. So when you talked about doing research animals, um, naturally knowing me, I was probably going to pick a bird to talk about. Um, and so this would inevitably lead to the domestic chicken as this is probably the most well-studied bird on the planet this is just a pretty consistent theme within research a lot of species that have some kind of agricultural um, application are very well studied because they affect our food source so however the, the issue with that is that we're not we're not entirely sure where domestic chickens came from Like genetic markers have pointed toward the red jungle fowl, but this remains like a more of a high probability than a certainty. So discussing the domestic chicken would be somewhat complicated because I wouldn't really know what species exactly I was going to talk about. They were domesticated a while ago, too. Right. right. Very early on human history. So we're not entirely sure about how that process played out as well. So there's it would be a lot of speculation. And so I decided not to go down that route. The other thing, too, is that we encounter chickens all the time. So it would be a little boring to talk about, I think. You know, people are pretty familiar with chickens. You know, maybe introduce people to something they're not as familiar with or tell them more about something they're not as familiar with. So this then led me to another idea, which was um, a very popular pet that is also widely used in a lot of research studies. That is a bird. Do you have any guesses? Pigeon? 
Uh, no, I'm going to be talking about zebra finches. Okay. Yeah. No, I wouldn't have guessed that one. Really? People got to do pigeons too, right? They do use pigeons, but a lot of times zebra finches are zebra finches are very commonly used in a lot of research studies that are done on birds for a lot of reasons that I'll get into, but they're very popular as pets as well. A lot of people keep zebra finches as, in their houses. Um, they're not like parrots in the way that they'll bond with their owners. You, people usually have like a small flock of zebra finches that just kind of do their own thing and sing and, you know, look pretty and hop around and are energetic and lively. Um, whereas parrots will actually form a bond with their owner. So it's a different kind of pet. It's more like having a fish instead of having, you know, a dog. But um, they're still very popular as pets. They're pretty easy to take care of and, you know, do well in a house. Yeah, I think that's a trend. I actually also mentioned it for my animal. Typically, a good research animal also makes a good pet. You want something that adapts well to captivity. Like You don't want to do research on a rhino or a grizzly bear. Right, right. That would get complicated, especially because when you're doing research on an animal, um, you want it generally to be in a controlled setting. Like, obviously, if you're doing field research, that's impossible. But if you're testing some kind of drug or treatment for medical applications, you want to control as many of the variables as possible. So you're going to keep them inside in a lab setting. So, yes, exactly. Animals that make good pets make good good research animals in a lot of cases. But getting back to zebra finches, um, for those who don't know, Zebra finches are these small, colorful finches that are originally native to Australia. These days, they've spread to the islands of Indonesia and throughout the world because of their popularity as pets. Specifically, zebra finches live in areas that are drier and hotter. They live in the arid and semi-arid areas of Australia, which, you know, happens to be most of the continent. And they are a species with a very noticeable but not extreme sexual dimorphism in appearance and a far more pronounced dimorphism in song. Uh, males are far more colorful and clearly distinguishable, but the difference is not as dramatic as in some other species of bird. In terms of song, the females don't sing while the males do. Um, females do have a, a variety of calls that they use, so it's not like they're totally silent, but they don't sing the same way that the males do. Zebra finches are also highly sociable. Like I mentioned earlier, when people have them as pets, they usually keep all, a small flock of them, you know five, ten or so, um, instead of just one of them. And this is because they live and breed in groups of uh, about a 100 individuals when they're in the wild. They also pair for life, at least socially. As we've discussed on the show, there can be social monogamy, but cheating is very common amongst birds, including species that are socially monogamous. So a pair might be bonded and committed to raising the same young, but they could be mating with other individuals as well. And zebra finches are no different from the birds in this category. What is interesting, though, with zebra finches is that the female will choose the nesting site and build the nest herself, while the male brings all of the nesting material. The male basically has no part in choosing the nest location or its construction at all. Well, he can provide whatever he wants. True, true. But, you know, that's still a relatively small contribution. Maybe he wanted a nice oaky finish. He can grab some bark. For the exterior true but aaron if we're building a house and um you provide all the materials for the house and you envision a cabin on a nice cabin on the side of a lake 
And I then go and take all that material and build the cabin at the bottom of the lake. You'd have some questions, no? Like that would be a, that would be a pretty big departure from what you were originally envisioning with the materials. Yeah. Yeah. Well, next time you're just getting some bundles of straw. No more lumber for you. I would actually argue that you probably wouldn't even let there be a next time. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'd probably cut it off then and there. Yeah, my point being that the materials really isn't, you don't really have that much control over the nest. And so the male, in this case, really doesn't have that much control in that. But having gone through the background on the birds themselves, let's talk about the research applications. So zebra finches are actually the most widely studied captive bird on the planet, according to some measures, despite the fact that they have no agricultural purpose. We don't use zebra finches to control pests. We don't use them as a food source. They're not even really pests themselves. So why are they so widely studied? Well, like we've been mentioning, their popularity as a research animal stems largely from their success as a captive animal. They're just some animals that thrive in artificial environments, and zebra finches are a prime example of that. The main reason for this is that zebra finches are opportunistic breeders. So the desert environments in which they live are so harsh that they have evolved to really only ramp up their breeding when conditions are optimal. In the case of the finches, because they live in the desert, they start breeding whenever water is really plentiful. So basically, you can give zebra finches lots of water, and they will breed like crazy. Like, they basically become like feathered versions of the phrase from Game of Thrones, but without all the backstabbing and murder. Oh, of course, I understand this reference. Without the backstabbing and the murder, for sure. That's the most integral part to the topic of which you've spoken. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I expect you to know everything and, any, and anything about that family. But as a result, in captivity... When people give them plenty of water, the finches just thrive. Plus, people like having them around because they're colorful, they produce lots of cheerful calls, and are generally entertaining to watch. So, it's a win for the humans, it's a win for the birds. So, of course, when we wanted to study songbirds, the zebra finches became a prime candidate. Because they were already so common as pets that it was really easy to study them in controlled settings for scientific research. So... Zebra finches have been used in research of all different kinds, from mate choice to song learning to neurological composition. Basically, if it relates to a songbird, somebody has probably tried to study it using zebra finches. Some of these studies are really cool, too. Like, my personal favorite was one where they, tr where they tied large white feathers to the heads of male zebra finches to see if this made them more or less attractive to the females. I don't know if you remember hearing about this one. I do remember this one. <laughs> yeah, this was really funny because it turns out that the females loved the males with these crazy white head feathers sticking out of the back of their heads. They had never encountered males with that trait and so would have no way of knowing they liked that trait. But when they encountered it, they were like, ooh, that's really <laughs> sexy. <laughs> they put these funky little hats on them and they could not stop getting laid. They look like socially insensitive people dressing up as Native Americans for Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's just the single feather straight up in the air. But they liked it. Yeah. It worked for them. <laughs> the zebra finches were all about it. Um, but yeah, that study also, in addition to being objectively hilarious, also raised a lot of questions about subconscious mate preference and 
that we're completely unaware of, but which can totally influence our decisions without us knowing, you know? So really, I guess everyone just kind of has a weird white feather preference that they don't know about yet. The thing about research animals, though, is usually you study them because you can't do that study on people. I think that's the one we could try with people. We could try it. (laughs) Just send a handful of dudes into the club with a big old peacock feather sticking straight into the air. See how they come out in the end. I feel like that wouldn't work with people, though, the same way that it worked with the zebra finches, because any woman in the club would just look at all these dudes wearing these weird feather hats and just and just look at them and be like, what, is there some kind of cult taking over the club right now? <laughs> like, <laughs> that would really freak them out, I feel like. I'd be freaked out. All right, alternatively, we release a bunch of women into the club, and we get every guy in on it, and they either have a feather or they don't. And then we see which ones they like better. Or we could do a dating show. I can see the waiver. You know, you're signing up to be a part of the study. They don't want to tell you too much. They kind of say, is it about the feathers? Uh, what gave it away? <laughs> There's a room full of men with feathers. Like, normally when they test some kind of treatment on people, they're, there's a, they're at least single blind or double blind, meaning that in the single blind study that the participants don't know what they're getting. And in the double blind study, the, the researchers don't even know what the participants have gotten. So with this, with this hypothetical study, there's no way to apply those kinds of, you know, research methods that eliminate bias in the study. So it would just be ridiculous. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I still want to see someone do it. No, we want it to happen. We very much do. I just don't think the results would be very useful, (laughs) but Despite all this research, there are still some questions about using zebra finches, you know, in research. Because so far, this seems like a pretty solid dynamic, right? Like, we have this species that does really well in captivity and provides us with a lot of insights into the world of songbirds. But the problem is that because zebra finches are a, a desert species, they have behavioral cues which are unlike those of other songbirds. So other songbirds don't start mating like crazy as soon as water is present. Triggers like that indicate that zebra finches have different social cues than other songbirds and could actually be relatively unique in terms of their behavioral patterns. So it's possible that years of research, decades really at this point, were done on a species that does not represent most of most other songbirds. So, And all because some guy left a humidifier plugged in. <laughs> It skewed everything. No, that's a good point, though. That is, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so it might be unwise to draw sweeping conclusions about songbirds based on studies that were conducted only on zebra finches. Yeah, but again, it's hard to, because you need a lot of the animal. And I know a lot of songbirds have very elaborate mating songs or rituals or something like that. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's hard to get a large number of them if it takes them a long time to reproduce true if you're trying to keep the setting controlled the zebra finches are still a really great option because of how well they do in captivity that's not the case with a lot of other songbirds other songbirds get really stressed out you know they get really uncomfortable understandably so it's a really unfamiliar environment for them and so they just don't behave as well or the way they would in the wild so you have similar problems using a different species that does not do very well in captivity but that doesn't mean that there aren't still serious questions about 
using zebra finches and drawing conclusions about the zebra finch studies that have been done. It's like we pretty much always say on the show, this is a pretty constant refrain, but for every rule, there is an exception. So oh, yes. it, could, it could be that we have just spent years studying the exception, thinking that it is the rule. So it's just something that we need to be cognizant about moving forward. But all that being said, zebra finches, zebra finch studies certainly have uses. I am in no way saying that we should ignore all the work done on this species. I'm just suggesting that the conclusions made about songbirds based solely on zebra finches should be corroborated by research conducted on other less extreme songbirds that don't, you know, produce a ton of young whenever they're just encountered with a very large puddle. In other words, shouldn't make sweeping generalizations about one group based on a single member of that group. So we should just be more deliberate and careful when choosing our research animals moving forward. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But again, there's only so many animals that are suitable. Again, it really has to, the first thing is it has to be a good pet. That is the first step of a research animal. It has to work well with people. Sure, sure. And in sure. captivity. Yeah, this, I guess my my whole point here is more aspirational than it is practical. Like, in a lot of cases with research, we have this goal that we like this gold standard that we want to attain. But a lot of times there are certain constraints that don't allow us to get to that same goal. And so we have to kind of work with what we have. And in this case, we work with zebra finches because we have a lot of them. Um, I'm saying that in an ideal world, we would, you know, include other species to see if those trends that we observe in zebra finches are really present throughout the entire group. That being said, that's pretty much my topic. Oh, cool, cool. I do have one question. Do you know if zebra finches happen to be invasive in a lot of areas? Um, so I know that they've they started living in Indonesia. And it's it's pretty wet there, isn't it? I bet they're getting it, it on is. all the time. Is that why they're present there? It it isn't, it isn't. It's, I think they're present there just because people move them around a lot and so they've kind of spread around. As far as I know, they're not a problematic invasive species anywhere. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that that does. I was just wondering. You know, I, I think of things like rats. Rats are everywhere. Yes. I yes. don't think that's because of lab rats, but I mean, that probably played a role also. Right. Well, rats were just spread around because, you know, they were always near humans. Yeah, that's true. And as humans spread, so did the rats. So that was that was very unintentional on our part. If zebra finches spread around the world, it would be a touch more deliberate. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw, but there is a flamingo that, oh, I don't know where it was sighted. I think it was either Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. It got blown off course by a hurricane. This was this year. It was a couple months ago. No, I totally missed that. That's crazy. All right, I got to look it up. Yep. Five American flamingos touched down in Wisconsin in September of this year. Maybe they just wanted some cheese. Yeah, made their way to Lake Michigan. Yeah, they really went off course. Yeah, their feathers are now yellow instead of pink from all the cheese. <laughs> They've been snacking on it. Yes, precisely. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's my piece. So right, cool, what, cool. Have you, what have you got for me? All right, so. I'm going to discuss an animal that I know you're familiar with. It's a very popular 
research amphibian that's fully aquatic, but it's not the one you're thinking of. It's the other one. Any ideas? Is it the axolotl? No, it's not the one you're thinking of. It's the other one. <laughs> there's like there's like two big ones. Uh is it uh the Xenopus frogs? Yep. Yep. Uh, or to translate the African clawed frog is the common name for it. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, uh definitely a big one. Very. So uh for this I will discuss first their biology and then I'll follow with their history and research. So First up, what is an African clawed frog? These frogs are in the family Pipidae, and this is a group of very primitive frogs. So usually when you think of a frog, something like a bullfrog comes to mind. It can hop around fairly well on land and still get around pretty well in the water. Well, these guys are much more aquatic. They don't really go on land unless they need to get out and go somewhere else. And they have very primitive features, like they have no vocal sacs, they have no tongues, and they don't have external eardrums either. So they're very much built just to live in the water. Their scientific name is, as you mentioned, Xenopus lavis, at least for the most popular species, which translates to strange foot and smooth, which uh, gives a little hint to how they look. Uh, they're very smooth, and they're called clawed frogs because their back legs are webbed, look kind of like a traditional frog leg. But the front have very long little fingies sticking out. And they use that to scoop food into their mouths. Because, you know, working right. tongues, they don't really have that. Going off on a tangent here, but when does an appendage go from a finger to a fingy? It's all about proportions. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's like, you look at them, it's like, ah, they, they got the fingies right there, you know? I, I feel like they have to be, like, really, they either have to be, like, really stubby, like, the, the, the T-Rex hands, those would be fingies because they're all stubby. Or they have to be like really long and thin. That's a fingy. Well, they and are long and thin. Right, that's my point. That's like that that's why they're fing that's why the, the clawed frogs have the fingies instead of fingers. If they lived on land, these fingers would be perfectly adapted to like reaching into a bag and pulling out a Cheeto without making any noise. Ah, they'd be so good at emptying Pringle cans. They oh they'd be the best at it. Oh my gosh, we need we need human sized clawed frogs just for that purpose. <laughs> uh, they don't actually have claws; it's just long fingers. But you know the name sticks. They can get anywhere from uh, two to five inches long in body length, and they usually are a mottled brownish gray pattern. Although many albino individuals exist in captive populations. So these frogs are found widespread across sub-Saharan Africa. And as far as amphibians go, these are probably some of the toughest ones. Usually amphibians are a bit on the weaker side because they, uh, they can absorb chemicals through their skin. Makes them susceptible to you know, pretty much anything in the water. Right. right. But these guys tend to tolerate a fairly wide range of things. So they're usually found in ponds with less water flow. And I'm guessing they do better in environments with less large predatory fish. But from what I've read, they can be found in ponds, swamps, slow-flowing rivers, other watery habitats, drainage ditches, stuff like that. And they can tolerate a fairly large range of temperatures, salinities, nutrient levels, and pH. And even though they're found in sub-Saharan Africa, they can actually tolerate fairly cold temperatures. Uh, just above freezing point, I believe. They can tolerate a light frost. Really? Wow. They're mm -hmm. tough little buggers. 
Eh, they are. They are capable of breathing air, which allows them to thrive in oxygen-poor environments where other species may not. So something like a fish, which can't do that, these frogs could do fine there. And they don't move very well on land. But if it's very rainy out, they've been documented to move up to a mile to find a new water source. Okay, so that's that's their one weakness is they don't really hop around very much. They can't hop that well. They'll move if they need to, but they're really not great at it. These are very aquatic frogs. They, when you raise them, you keep them in a full aquarium. So these frogs tend to be generalist predators and scavengers as well. They're known to eat insects, worms, fish, other frogs, their own larvae, and kind of any dead animal. If they can use their hands to kind of pull a chunk off, they, they'll eat that chunk. It's about anything that fits into their mouth. Uh, an interesting study I found, and it's one reason for their success, is that the tadpoles are filter feeders. The tadpoles also have barbels, so a lot of people think they're baby catfish. They're not. It's just a little, you know, you scoop one up. It's like a little surprise. It's like, ah, this ain't a catfish. Anyways, they're filter feeders, so they feed off of algae or plankton in the water. And the adults are also very cannibalistic. So, essentially, these frogs can go to an environment with not a lot of nutrients. The larvae will filter feed off plankton in the water, and the adults will eat the larvae and then reproduce. So, it's kind of like a perpetual motion machine that involves eating your own children. You really don't want to make your, ma your parents mad if you're one of these frogs, I guess. No, you don't. Uh, but it does allow them to colonize aquatic environments that may ha not have enough food to support other animals of similar sizes. So that's one reason why they they strike out on their own, why they make it in the world. Wow, those I'm telling you, those frog parents really, they got to be top of the list for some of the worst parents in the animal kingdom, which is saying a lot. Yeah, yeah no, they're certainly up there. Like, I, it would be very hard to imagine a human parent going up to its child and being like, you better be really, really good today. And if you're not, I'm going to eat you, digest you, and use your nutrients to produce another kid. <laughs> One that cleans its room. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of children, these frogs are not picky. Like the finches, they reproduce multiple times a year. Which not a lot of animals do. Usually they just breed once. These guys can breed multiple times a year, up to four times. So they can they keep it going. Yep. Makes sense. And this kind of brings me back to round is why they make good research animals. And I think the first part is just their basic biology. And we talked about this. When you're picking an animal for research, you want one that does well in captivity. Right. right. So... These frogs, they're very adaptable. They're not picky with water parameters. They have a generalist diet, so they can just easily be fed commercial fish pellets. Uh, another thing, they don't pose a threat to the researcher. They're a frog. They can't really do much. Uh, not that the finches did either, but, you know, you don't want to raise scorpions, you know. True. True. Black widows, something like that. And, of course... Uh, they can be bred in large quantities as well. They just kind of go at it. So you can get a large number of them in captivity, easy to care for. And, uh, oh, like I said, they are fully aquatic. So most species of amphibians require a mixture of water and land to raise. That might not be 50-50, might be skewed to one side or the other. But in terms of maintaining a ton of them, 
that can be a bit difficult because you have to clean the land portion and the water portion. Uh, it's just a lot to do. But with these guys, you just have to do water change. Uh, yeah, so at face value, that's why they're used for research. It's just their ability to do well in captivity. But their usage in the field of medicine and research goes back further than you might think. So take this one with a grain of salt because I found a single article from 1991 to back it up. But apparently... I just want to stop you right now and say that I love stories that begin with take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> like usually people might tell the story and then say at the end, okay, take this with a grain of salt because of this, this, and this. But when people begin the story with that, you know there's <laughs> really crazy stuff that's about to go down. Well, I don't want to forget the, the salt grains at the end for you to take. Uh, so I'm putting it out in advance. Oh, so now it's salt grains, not salt grain. Yeah, maybe three or four. This one, it's not... As far as things I've talked about before, it's not the most far-fetched, but again, I didn't find a ton of evidence for it. It all went back to the same article. Okay. All right. Hit me with these salt grains and the story to which they will be applied. <laughs> so apparently, the first account I found is that these were traditionally used as an aphrodisiac in sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, a little boost to your bedroom life. All right. Apparently, French soldiers in the late 1800s were suffering from priapism, which is a long-lasting and painful erection. And this is just an outbreak to all the soldiers. It's hitting them all at once. It was later discovered that these outbreaks were linked to soldiers eating frog legs in northern Africa. Upon dissection, these frogs were found to be full of beetles that produce cantharidin, and that is a toxin produced by some insects. It's usually a skin irritant, but can cause unwanted erections if it's ingested. Okay, so is this like a precursor to Viagra then? Yeah, I guess, except really painful and long-lasting. I remember there's an SNL skit, and it was like for some sort of knockoff of Viagra. And it said, if you have an erection lasting more than three hours, call a friend and brag. That was a <laughs> disclaimer at the end. <laughs> but some evidence to back this up is there were research in the 1990s by Thomas Eisner, who's actually a very famous entomologist, and he found that the toxins, if the frogs ingest these insects, the toxins have no effect on the frogs, but they can sequester the toxins and pass them on to predators. So, yeah, it's possible these were a very primitive Viagra at one point. Yeah, no one... Wow, no wonder French people like eating frogs so much. Yeah, <laughs> spice things up a bit. For sure, for sure. It would be even more exciting if you were French and they had a mixture of frog legs. So some of them were the, the clawed frogs and some of them were normal frogs and you didn't know which ones you were going to get. <laughs> it was like a roulette. <laughs> hey, you'll find out soon enough. You may be shuffling awkwardly bent over out of the restaurant. Right. <laughs> for some for some people winter's over and for some people we got six more weeks if you catch my <laughs> So the big break for these frogs is their usage as pregnancy tests. And as you would say, I'll let that sink in. Okay. Pregnancy tests. So what they would do is they had a bunch of these in jars at drugstores 
and uh, you'd use a bathroom and a worker would hand you one under the stall door. And when you pee on them, you'd see two blue little lines appear on their back if you were pregnant. Wait, just just the frog itself? No, I'm, I'm kidding. That's not how it worked. It'd be pretty funny, though. No, no, there's a couple more steps to it, but it's really not that far-fetched. Uh, so, this was discovered in the 1930s by South African researchers Shapiro and Zwarenstein, and they found that the females would produce eggs if you injected them with urine of a pregnant woman. The hormones in the urine triggered the females to start laying eggs within about 12 hours. So, that's all you did. You peed, gave it to one of these researchers, and they injected the frog, and they could tell you by the next day. It's a really crazy hormonal mechanism on the part of the frogs, though. Like, the, the idea that the frog, some part of the frog is thinking, well, she's having kids. I should, too. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to be left out. <laughs> Actually, a lot of animals do this. So prior to this, pregnancy test involved injecting mice or rabbits with the urine, and then you actually had to dissect them within a day and examine their ovaries to get the results. Obviously, this was very expensive. This was very costly, especially if you weren't pregnant and then it was kind of wasted. Also inhumane, no? Yeah. We're just injecting animals with human urine? Yeah, but... The good thing about the frogs is that they didn't have to die in the end. You could use them again. Uh, maybe give them a break. I'm just, it's probably taxing on them. but you is, know. That a, is that a good thing? <laughs> I, they don't get dissected in the end. I mean, sure, but imagine having that conversation with the frog. Hey, the good news is you're not going to die. <laughs> Bad news is, we're going to do that horrific thing over and over and over again. <laughs> it's kind of like a uh, football coach. It's like, all right, good hustle out there. Hit the showers and see you next week. <laughs> oh, that's so messed up. Those poor frogs. Yeah, well, this was uh, what they did until they had the uh, bioassays test. But these frogs were used up until about the 60s. It's not that long ago, all things considered. That's very much a forgotten bit of history. And they were imported all over the world to be used as pregnancy tests. Like, this was widespread. Yeah, so that's what kind of kicked off their status, I think, as research animals. The 1960s? Up until the 1960s. I'm sure it was starting to wane well before that. But, yeah. So you're saying that as late as the 1950s, there is a reasonable conversation that could have happened between a boyfriend and a girlfriend where the girlfriend said, Hey, I'm late. And the boyfriend goes, Oh, well, what happened with the frog? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. You know, that was supposed like to be that, like the golden age of America. They don't seem to be talking about it too much. That conversation was being had by members of the quote unquote greatest generation. <laughs> I don't know if they advertise this. It might have been you go to the lab, you pee in the jar, and they don't really tell you what happens. They just get you the results on a piece of paper afterwards. Send you a letter. What else are they going to do? Send you pictures of them injecting your urine into a frog? <laughs> yeah, they, this is the guy in the background with the urine syringe giving a thumbs up. 
I'm going to send a postcard. Wish you were here, right, written right at the bottom. So uh, these guys were imported all across the world for this purpose. And I'm willing to bet that because they were bred in labs for pregnancy tests, again, I don't know how prevalent they were. I mean, everyone might have not used them. They might have been expensive, but they were used. They were found across the world. So I think it's because of their prevalence, probably labs were breeding them for this purpose, that they were starting to be used for other research. So these frogs are tetrapods like humans. We're not closely related, but these frogs are often studied for their usage in developmental biology, especially because you can take a frog egg and just look through it. It's jelly. So you can watch that embryo develop through a microscope. You don't have to cut anything open. Sure, sure. That's one of the biggest ones, but they're also popular in the usage of genetics, biochemistry, toxicology, neurology, cell biology, and molecular biology. There's too many studies to list each major one that use these frogs because a lot of them, the frogs weren't the focal point. They were just the means of research. They've, they're very popular. They're definitely a model organism. They're probably one of the most utilized lab animals. Definitely not up there with rodents, but they're certainly used. So I will give you a little bit of history of them. They were actually the first vertebrate to be cloned in the 1950s. But they did not get a famous name like Dolly the Sheep. That frog was sadly forgotten. Once again, if it's not a mammal, people just absolutely disrespect it. Happens Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Time and time again. Uh, they were sent to space in the 90s. A lot of animals were sent to space in the 90s, though. They were, this was kind of the age of, hey, let's put it in space. We, we know we're smart enough to bring it back this time. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know how to bring it back home. But, yeah, no, I, I feel like that, that era of space exploration is kind of overlooked because we weren't, you know, visiting moons or planets or anything at that point. And but we were still launching things into space because we still needed something, you know, still needed applications to do. And there's a lot of really interesting research to be done, but you just didn't hear about it because we'd already been to space. We'd already been to the moon. So people were kind of interested in other things. They were tuning out for the most part. Uh, I think one exception being the challenger anyways. uh, So recently the cells of these frogs were used to create something called Xenobots, which it kind of sounds like a weird rock'em sock'em robot toy, but it's actually a small cluster of frog stem cells that move around and reproduce on their own. They have videos of it, it kind of looks like a Pac Man and he just moves. They called it, it they called it biological robots, right. But why do they have to name them after the evil androids in a sci-fi movie? Sounds cool. They're just Stop. really excited for the uh, robot uprising. Does it, though? Xenobot is a, it's a little cool. I don't know. If, I, to, if you, I told a kid, like, yeah, I study Xenobots, they'd probably think, oh, it's like giant robots that fight each other. And they show them these little like Pac-Man amoebas running around in a petri dish. And I had them excited for a little bit at least. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did a little reading into this. Oh, it's definitely worth looking into on your own time. 
yeah, from what I've told, it's just, you know, they kind of got these stem cells to assemble a small little organism. Not an organism, a small little, well, they call them robots. can run around, it can eat on its own and reproduce. Pretty cool. But the last experiment I'm going to mention, and it's become somewhat infamous in its legacy... I think you have heard of it. You may recall a certain clip of Alex Jones ranting about chemicals in the water that are turning the freaking frogs gay. Yep. Yep. There's somewhat of a basis to this. It is based on a study of the effects of atrazine, which is a popular herbicide, and it was tested on the African clawed frogs. Well, one study found that the chemical acted as a hormone disruptor in the frogs which castrated 75% of the males and turned 10% of them into females. And some of them also became hermaphrodites. So it really messed with their reproductive system. There were males that were developing eggs inside their testicles. It was just a mess. And essentially, it crashed the population because they just could not functionally reproduce. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading about this. So it's theorized that the atrazine activates an enzyme which converts testosterone into estrogen. And mind you that all these studies were using quantities of atrazine that were below the legal limit for drinking water in the United States. So I will say there's been more recent studies that don't back up this proposal. Actually, several studies since then have not been able to replicate the results of that first experiment. Definitely a lot of conspiracy theories have sprung forth from it as well. And there's been some questioning into the authenticity of the main researcher, Tyrone Hayes, who was the first professor, uh, sorry, the professor who first reported this in the early 2000s. The EPA has also done some testing and they have not been able to reproduce the results of this experiment. But I don't know if maybe that's just them covering their ass. True true it seems like this is not set in stone i think there's more research to be here i'm not going to go down the rabbit hole you should do your own research i'm just saying one one paper found that this happened well i remember watching the ted talk on it years ago and thinking oh yeah this seems seems legit to me but then there's been a lot of research since then and they can't replicate the results so i don't know maybe some got screwed up maybe everyone else is lying i don't know it's beyond my pay grade. There are a lot of layers to that story, and it's really fascinating and really worth looking into, and I, I recommend that anyone take a look into it. But I don't know if we quite have the time to do that story justice here. Yeah, uh, but this is one of those kind of big if true scenarios. It could definitely be contributing to the worldwide decline of amphibians if it's true. I don't know. Right. Neither do I. I'm I don't feel qualified to really make a definitive statement there. So the last part that I'm going to mention now and the last part of the research on the frogs is not about their usage as a lab animal. Unfortunately, it's about their ecological impacts. Oh, okay. Because unfortunately, as adorable as these guys are, they are a widespread invasive species, which is why I asked about the zebra finches. So basically, all the traits that make them good for research animals, they're adaptable and quick breeding, also allow them to be a pretty bad invasive species. They are currently found invasive in the United States, Chile, Italy, Portugal, United Kingdom, China, 
and many more countries, basically parts of North and South America, Asia, and Europe. So most continents at this point. Most continents with the, obviously not Antarctica, and uh, they don't seem to be present in Australia either. They were already there in Africa. That's where they're actually from. Right, right, okay. But like I said, their ability to tolerate many conditions and live in environments with little food thanks to their little cannibalism practices allows them to outcompete a lot of native amphibians. And it also allows them to live in kind of like drainage ditches or ornamental ponds, suburb er- suburban areas where there might not be a lot of wildlife. These guys can thrive. You can find isolated pockets of them across the world. They're not right. widespread in the sense that they completely cover an area. They're widespread in the sense you find little bits just here and there. But a lot of little bits. Plus, if they handle low oxygen conditions really well, then that's obviously very beneficial because a lot of aquatic environments that are heavily polluted are low in dissolved oxygen. So that would certainly benefit them. Mm -hmm. What's even worse is that these frogs are actually vectors of the deadly chytrid fungus. That's probably the worst bit of it. It's a lot worse than the competition aspect. So this fungus is lethal to many different species of amphibians and has contributed to the extinction of 90 species already. This is a this fungus is bad news for amphibians and it's spreading fairly rapidly. There's been a lot of halts on importation of pet frogs and like frogs for food into the United States from many different countries because of this reason. Yeah, that's understandable. Okay. So African clawed frogs actually don't seem to be affected by the fungus. However, they can transfer it easily to other amphibian species, especially if they're healthy because they just move around like normal. They get up, they move to a new pond, they think nothing's going wrong, and they introduce the fungus to the native amphibians. So that is why they're currently being watched. So yes, they are a great research model for a lot of different reasons. But now they're also being researched in the environment to see what havoc they are re- what havoc they've unleashed upon the native amphibians. So it's not entirely sure how these frogs became invasive. It's likely a combination of their uses as pregnancy tests, research animals, and pets, because they are somewhat popular pets. Okay. If I had to guess which of these is the most impactful, I'm betting it's their pregnancy tests. Really? Because, uh, hear me out, these frogs were imported across the world. I don't know how prevalent they were, but if they're the most reliable test system of the time, sounds like a lot of labs are going to have them. As soon as these bioassay tests come out, they're disposable, that aren't living, breathing animals. Those frogs are a liability, and I'm willing to bet some companies just dump them. Yeah, Probably. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, it's probably some people release their pet frogs as well, but I don't know if there are enough people having these as pets for them to be in the numbers that they are today. Okay. Okay. So I'm willing to bet that it is probably the pregnancy test usage being one of the main reasons for their spread. Uh, Again, maybe lab animals being released, you know, standards have definitely changed in the past century. So people probably turned them loose when they were done with the study. And, you know, I know for certain people do release pets. Oh, yeah. 
but they're not a super popular pet. At least not nowadays. They're actually illegal in several states now. Okay. that's Again, that makes sense if they're carrying deadly fungi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Well, if they're born and raised in captivity, they should be fine. It shouldn't have it at all. And then I want to end on a slightly positive note. And the question is, do these frogs make good pets? And I say yes, absolutely. Uh... I think they're just fun little guys. If you want a pet frog, but you don't have to manage a terrarium or paludarium, just keep them in an aquarium, and you don't have to worry about scooping out poop. Just do a water change. I think they're full of personality. They look kind of goofy. Make a great centerpiece, conversation starter, and they're pretty easy to care for. They live up to 30 years, though, so they are a commitment. Of course, uh, check your state or whatever country you're from. Check the local laws to see if you can actually own one, because they are banned in quite a few areas. Yeah, but I mean, if they're banned, it's probably for a good reason. Well, again, they're banned, but I think the ban came, it was it was too late. Obviously, I think the damage was done years ago. Uh, I'm willing to bet it was the pregnancy test usage that was the big kickstart to their invasion. Well, I mean, I'm I'm less inclined to blame everything on the pregnancy tests, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like... Those laws make some kind of sense because you you don't want the problem getting any worse. No, you don't want the problem getting any worse. That that's for certain. But I, it's not like a they're a super popular pet. I mean, if you can own a cat, if you can own an outdoor cat, you should be able to own these frogs. That's my hot take. The destruction that outdoor cats do to local environments, frankly, doesn't even compare to pretty much any other pet that is very true unless i don't know you you raise like parasitic flies for some reason but i don't think anyone does that i don't know aaron i've i've started breeding ticks with lyme disease in my basement and releasing them in neighborhoods so you better watch out (laughs) some dude's got free range zika infested mosquitoes in his backyard i'm eventually gonna branch out and start my own culture of zebra mussels and start releasing them into waterways across the world. So watch out for that one. Yeah, I just think they look cool. I want to spread them around. Then I do get the argument for banning the frogs. I don't want anyone to release them. But again, then I don't know if they're the biggest fish to fry. True, true. I like people being able to keep frogs. I'm pro-frog. You? No. Yeah, who'd have thought? Um, yeah, I definitely agree with you that outdoor cats are way more ecologically destructive than these frogs, but it doesn't change the fact that if they're banned in your area, you should follow the laws. Yeah, yeah, don't keep an illegal frog. It's They're cool, but they're not cool enough to worth the fine of being caught with one. Right. If you can't keep them, keep a native species that you legally can keep. Yeah, there are plenty or of there's those. plenty of other exotic ones that are probably legal in your state. You got other options. Anyway, um, all right, awesome. I'm assuming that's the end of your piece. Yeah, yeah, that's my piece. That's my piece there. Okay, cool, cool, cool. That was really awesome. I knew that those were research frogs and they were widely used, but I didn't know any of those other details, so that was awesome to hear about. Yeah, Uh, the pregnancy test, I think, uh, I didn't find a ton of information, but that, that could be the topic of like its own book, I think. Oh, absolutely. Because I didn't know how the facilities worked. I didn't know like if this was a mail order thing or a DIY, maybe you rent the frog. 
I, I didn't know how any of that operated. Maybe they got U-Hauls for these things. You just take a jar with it. Yeah, were people keeping these frogs in their houses just for this purpose? Like, there's so many questions that I have. Yeah. Oh, one other cool fact. I was going to throw this in at one point. Uh, if you remember Return of the Jedi, Jabba the Hutt has like a little fishbowl next to him with like food. It, yeah. It was the frogs. Yeah. Oh. They're in like a jar of green water. Yeah. All right. I remember seeing that as a kid and going, African clawed frogs. I know those. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fool me george lucas uh, let me guess you also watched psycho a few years later and went chocolate syrup maybe i, I never saw psycho oh well you understand the reference right i, I know he's a psycho okay 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 so in the movie Psycho, like there's oh, the, you know, no, I'm thinking American Psycho, not the no. the original Psycho, the, the black original, and white one, the one in from the '60s, yeah, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. Yeah, okay. No, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, I was thinking American Psycho, which I didn't see. I'm like, maybe Christian Bale had a sweet tooth in that one. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, just Psycho. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My bad. My bad. Yeah. Well. You know what they say, jokes are always funner, funnier when you have to explain them. So, <laughs> With that being said, what are you thinking about for our next topic? You know what, I thought about it. I say we can do a bird episode, a dedicated bird episode. Yeah. I, I know it would make you happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll scrape something together. Uh, okay, I'm so happy about that. I'm in. I'm in. 100%. <laughs> All right, well, that's sold then. All right. Cool. With that being decided, do you want to take us out? Yep. If you enjoy this episode, please give us a follow or review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can find us at Soup Pot Podcast on X or email us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com. All right. Until then, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.